0: Hi, I'm Gabby Herculano. And I'm
1: Shella Lika. And this is Climate Talk with Gabby and Shella, a weekly podcast in which we talk to an array of fascinating people from all corners of the business and financial world about their solutions for creating a decarbonized planet and a climate habitable for all.
0: Come join us as we push toward a greener future. Dave, we could not be more excited to have you with us today. You're a really big name within our team. We love your videos and we we're super happy to have the opportunity to talk to you. You started this Just Have a Thing YouTube channel in 2018. You've had over 26 million views. Why did you have, you know, this urge to start talking about technologies? Why YouTube? And did you expect to get to this number of viewers and subscribers?
2: Uh, No. In 2017, I was 48 years old. And, you know, like a lot of people, I'd had a 30 odd year career in nothing particularly astounding. I'm not a scientist or a climatologist, but I'd always, I'd worked as a product developer and, and gone to a lot of factories around the world, seen lots of parts of the world seen all sorts of you know poverty unfortunately seen some child labor in some factories that were very quickly taken out of the the remit that my company worked with of course and i've also seen production for sustainability and so i, I had a kind of kind of grounding in in generally thinking in a, in a reasonably sustainable way my my degree I've got a bsc in, in technology and that was about 25 years ago that it was already teaching us about sustainability we looked at the danish wind turbine model back in the early seventies, for example. So my mind was already thinking on those levels. And obviously like most people i have tried to live a reasonably conservative life with a small C, looking after things and not wasting too much. So I was doing all the normal everyday things most people do. And then I read a book in 2017 called A Farewell to Ice by professor Peter Wadhams, who is professor emeritus at Cambridge university. He spent 40 odd years studying the ice sheet in, um, in the Arctic. On the arctic mostly on the arctic sea and the thickness of the ice and the and the area of the ice and he's watched it you know diminish over those 40 years very very dramatically and he wrote a, a book explaining the science behind it and the projections for the future and the seriousness of the situation and And that it's a very it's a w- very well worth uh, reading the book by the way it's a very good book it's quite data heavy in the first couple of chapters but if you can get through that then it really opens up into an explanation of of why we need to be concerned. And that was kind of my epiphany at the age of 48. I thought, well, I I, I can probably, I've got some communication skills. I've got some tech skills in, in animation and, and producing PowerPoint presentations and, and videos on premiere pro in Adobe. And why don't I, you know, bring together all those things and start a journey for myself of, of starting to learn what I can do to change my lifestyle, to help and make my contribution and that's really how the channel started you'll see that the very first videos are about me learning more and more about what can be done and and, and what's happening around the world and it's and it's grown into more uh more of a channel that looks at sustainable technologies that might provide some of the solutions for the future and also keeping an eye on on the on the size of the problem so that we don't lose sight We, we mustn't ever get carried away with technology thinking that it's a silver bullet to, to change everything. We can't keep behaving the way we are without, and then put some technology on top of that and think that that'll solve the problem. Cause of course it won't. So the channel has tried to strike this balance between looking at technology and talking about behavioral change and also looking at environmental sustainability as well, because the, those three things, let's say the three, three legs of the stool that will get us out of the problem. But I didn't anticipate 26 million views. I just wanted to to start talking about the issues as much to help myself as other people. I thought if some people want to listen in, then that's great. I was working full-time at the time, so it wasn't like I was trying to do it for a living. And I, I did that for two years whilst working full-time. So it wasn't in, until twenty nineteen, the end of 2019 that I was supported by people on Patreon. So I was able to go full-time on the channel. But I've, I've never, one of the important principles of the channel is I've never Monetize any of the videos directly through YouTube. I never take paid sponsorships or partnerships. That's a really important principle because if I'm starting to talk about overconsumption and you know buying too many frivolous things that we don't need, then the idea that an advert would come in at the start of my video talking about something frivolous that you don't need was a complete anathema to me. So I, I right from the get-go, I decided never to do that. So here we are,
1: Dave. One of the things I love about your videos is they're so well balanced and well researched. And, you know, you can see you're clearly such an eloquent presenter, but also in this world we live in and not just with climate, but more generally, I think that's one of the things that's sorely missing right now is is a more balanced, evidence-based approach that allows room for all opinions. Is that just your personality? Did you set out with that tone? Did you think this is what I want to create, a forum where, you know, there's evidence and people can hear? Or was there an evolution?
2: No, I think that that is an extension of my personality. So that's, I think that's quite handy. I've always, I've always found that there are in the bell curve, the normal distribution curve, there are two extremes of opinion and there are in climate change. There's, you know, there's let's say extinction rebellion at one end and let's say the fossil fuel brigade at the other end, those are two quite extreme opinions and everyone else lives in here. and And so that's most people. So my view is that if you're going to be most effective at communicating, you probably need to be talking to most people. You're never going to convince the fossil fuel brigade to change their ways. And you're certainly never going to convince the extinction rebellion to sort of row back a little bit and be a little bit more gentle because they do understand the urgency. So I've always believed that, that somewhere in the middle is, is probably the right answer. And I worked as a project manager for many, many years on building sites with trades like electricians and plumbers and plasterers and what have you. And again, you'll always have an opinion from one trade that's, that's swayed in their favor. <laughs> like an electrician, you know, wants to make sure that everything's been done perfectly, so all he has to do is come in and run his what or her wires and finish. Whereas the plasterer will have a different point of view. And the project manager's job is to find the middle point between all middle ground between all those points of view and make sure that the end object of the exercise is achieved in the right time frame, on cost, on budget on, and, and on time. That's, that's my job as a project manager. So finding the middle ground of all opinions is is crucial to that task. And it's exactly the same when we're talking about communicating climate change. Some people give exaggerated doomsday predictions of what's going to happen about climate change. You know, that some people are even saying the whole of human species is going to be extinct by, you know, 2030, which isn't, in my opinion is, 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 is not true. There's no scientific evidence to suggest that that's even remotely going to be one of the eventualities. Some people on the other hand say that the whole climate thing is a hoax. We all know who they are and that's not remotely true either. So both those extremes do some damage in my opinion to, to getting the, the job done. And we need to keep the, the rational science in the middle ground communicated in a, in a rational, and as you say, balanced way. There's plenty of science that, that, that explains what's happened, why it's happened, how the physical world works and why it's just a physical reality that you for example you put more carbon dioxide into an atmosphere it gets warm that's just a physical property of the molecule of carbon dioxide the way it's structured with two carbon uh, two oxygens and one carbon it traps infrared light it excites the oxygen atoms it holds onto that energy for a while it warms up the area around it and then when it lets the photon of light go It might go into space or it might go back down to work and start the whole process again. That's just physics. So those sorts of things are irrefutable. And and I think it's important to get those messages out in a calm, rational way based on scientific evidence, peer-reviewed papers. I use them a lot Um, and and not to try and not to be tempted towards the extremes for what they call clickbait on YouTube, because you can do that if you want, but it's not my game.
0: Now, let's get into into your process, because you go very deep in some technologies that are complex and hard to understand. Sometimes our small research team, we, we get into what we call rabbit holes. We keep doing research and research and we go in circles and we don't get to a conclusion. Um, green hydrogen is one that we've been looking for a really long time. And I know you've, you, 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 you've talked about that in many different episodes, liquid air batteries. How do you choose the topics and do you do the research um, yourself? You just mentioned uh, you like peer reviewed articles and research. Can you share more with us? How do you choose a topic? How long does it take for you to feel satisfied that you got the answers and how, how much time do you spend thinking about the best way to convey that message? Speaking to that uh, people in the middle of the distribution curve. Can you share a bit with us? I think you're going to enlighten us uh, a little. <laughs>
2: At the start, I I had to go and find information and really it was quite difficult at the start because I, you know, as Donald Rumsfeld once said, I didn't really know what I didn't know, the unknown unknowns. So I was really scrabbling around in the dark. We all know that you're supposed to use LED light bulbs and all the basic stuff. So that I knew that much and, and the rest I had to start finding out just by scouring the internet. I didn't really know anybody either. I got some leads from Peter Wadham's book, which was useful. So I, I looked at those. And they lead you down, as you say, I did all the rabbit hole stuff right at the get go, you know, four or five years ago. And um, I spent six months researching before I put a video onto YouTube. So that was a six month work, you know, part-time, obviously outside my full-time job, just trying to find out information for the very first video, which was an essential summary of the main elements of climate change and what's brought us here. So that research, I suppose, enlightened me about some of the web links and and some of the scientific um, organizations and papers that exist online, like science and nature and and many, many others, which I can't bring to mind at the moment, but there are a lot of them. So I I subscribed to lots of those. I started getting more and more data from lots of those. I started looking at more and more websites. And then actually Google's uh, search engine facility that starts giving recommendations for websites, for news, their little news feed that you get every day on your phone, or I do. That obviously that, that, that learns very quickly, the sorts of sites that you go and look at, so it gives you more information and more options and and more um, suggestions from sites like those, and that's been incredibly helpful. So now, to be honest, I'm flooded with information every day and I've got 1600 patrons who also, not all of them, but, but some of them are actively involved in the field and they come across information themselves. And they'll send them to me as well. So all of that comes in every day, like a tsunami of information. (laughs) And I scroll through and and I've got quite quick at scrolling through from titles. I can, I can tell whether it's clickbait or whether it's got some merit. And if it has merit, then I'll take it from, usually scanning on my phone, I'll take it from my phone, I'll send it to my desktop by email and I'll look at it in a designated period of the day later on when I've got time to read these articles and then each month I select the 10 articles that are the most promi- most interesting and the most, let's say impactful, I think the most meaningful, that would have the most useful information for the viewers. And I put that into a content poll for my Patreon supporters, and then they choose the four of those 10 that they would most like to see the following month. And then generally speaking there are some exceptions but generally speaking then i'll do those videos the following months that's how it works
1: you've learned so much over the last several years all this research um, reading all those papers it would be fascinating to hear from your perspective we all know and uh, i climb also is very much concerned with the fact that we have this looming deadline We, we must make action by 2030. what do you think in your mind are sort of the standout things both from you talked about the technology. So what are the technologies you're more excited about? Which ones do you think are really going to make um, a big difference? Which ones aren't getting enough support? And also you mentioned on the individual basis, what have you learned that perhaps surprised you or that you feel could make the greatest difference if more people knew about it over the next few
2: years? on, on the technology side, it, it, there's, there's no great surprises here. Solar and wind have been coming down in price for the last 10 years, like they've dropped off a cliff and they're continuing to do so. So the, the, what they call the levelized cost of electricity, the LCOE of those two technologies is already, you know, getting to a point where it's competitive. Um, it's way more competitive than coal, but it's getting competitive with gas now. And in the next decade or the rest of this decade to 2030 by 2030, I think solar and wind in most parts of the world will be, will be out competing gas as a main source of power on the grids. So that's the biggest step change. And and it's the volume. Now we're in this sort of the upward part of, let's say an exponential curve of the adoption of those two technologies. And as that curve goes up, so the price curve comes down. And conversely, as the usage curve of coal and gas goes down, so their cost price goes up. And so you've got two crossovers there um, where those two technologies will rapidly interchange from one to the other and, and, and solar and wind will be on the ascendancy. So that'll happen by 2030. The key part of making that happen, of course, is storage. So, so let's say wind and solar are pretty much sorted. So there are improvements to solar efficiencies that are being made. Perovskites, one option and, and what have you, and obviously larger wind turbines. That's because of the, the mathematics, the larger, the the sweep of a, of a turbine blade, you know, it does I think it's to the power of four. The power goes up every time you double it, something like that. Anyway, don't forget the exact science, but they're sorted out. We know how to, how to improve those storage. There's lots and lots of um, new technologies coming online for energy storage. It's not just lithium ion batteries although they are the main one at the moment, but there's lots of new technologies that are being tested. Liquid air is one of them. Flow batteries is another gravity batteries is another going up and down in mine shafts or tall towers. Um, and obviously there's pumped hydro, which is, you know, pumping water up a hill and pumping, letting it come down and go when, again when you when you need it. So, and there's geothermal, I mean, the list goes on and on and on. I could you know, do a whole interview about just those technologies. What we're finding, I think is that those those technologies are beginning to compete with each other. That's a bit of a concern for me. And so to answer your question, really, I think to get us to 2030 as effectively as possible. What we really need and whether we'll get it or not, I don't know, but what we really need is some kind of globally coordinated concerted agreement as to which technologies are going to be the most effective and how to get them rolled out as quickly as possible. And I believe that needs government intervention to work alongside corporations to get them to do the right thing. I believe we need a carbon tax an internationally agreed carbon tax. A lot of people disagree with that. I think it's essential. And it needs to be quite a high carbon tax. And there needs to be some government subsidy to make sure that tax isn't just hurting the the people on the lowest incomes. It needs to be organized in the right way so that it drives the right, again, it drives the right behavior. And then I suppose the last thing I'd say is we need to make sure that companies and individuals are not using carbon offsets to uh, justify their actions because Most of the, and when you say carbon offset, you're generally talking about planting trees somewhere. That's the typical thing that comes into someone's mind, the area of the world that's available for effectively planting trees in a, in a, in a way that would actually be beneficial is pretty much already all allocated by the large corporations who've already, you know, people like shell and and big banks and airlines like British airways have already said, they're going to plant a certain number of trees on a certain amount of land. And you add all that land up and it's already, it's already accounted for. So continuing to just say, we're going to plant more trees is a get out clause. That's completely spurious now. So companies need to actually take actual actions to reduce their carbon emissions, not to pay money, to offset them somewhere else by planting, apparently planting trees that'll probably never exist. And then on an individual level, just finally, you can look at your own lifestyle. You can do some easy things in your own home. If you own your own home. And you'll be paying for your electricity and and heating bills. So look for, if you can, look for a green supplier that that is 100% renewable energy and switch to them. If you've got a bank account, which you probably have if you own a home, then look for a bank that is a sustainable bank that only works with ethical projects and doesn't invest in fossil fuels. And in this country, without wishing to advertise, Triodos Bank is one that operates in this country that I bank with. They've never invested in fossil fuels. They only invest in ethical projects. They try and do local work wherever they can. And then if you've got a pension fund, do the same thing. So again, pension funds are opening up that, that are based on sustainable investments and don't invest in fossil fuels or anything else that's, that's of that nature. And that kind of divestment is already, again, it's already happening. It's been happening for 10 years and it's, it's trillions. It's, it's something like 11 or 12, I think, trillion dollars in the last 10 years has been divested out of fossil fuels just by people like you and me. And those are the sorts of individual actions that become collective actions if everybody does them. And and obviously change the LED lights. And if you if your car's coming to the end of its time, your internal combustion engine car is coming to the end of its time and you need a car, then make sure the next car you buy is is a is an is a electric vehicle. If you but check if you need a car. I, I ditched my car eight years ago and I, I haven't had one since and I ride a bicycle everywhere. And I get the public transport, I get a train if I need to go further afield. So you might not need a car, but if you do make sure the next one's an EV. So those are, you know, those are, then let's start, then he's starting to talk about money, of course. So that's, everyone will say, well, you know, it's all right, the people who can afford an EV, absolutely true. And solar panels on your home and air source heat pumps, which I've just had installed in my home. It's fine if you can afford it. Not everybody can. So again, government subsidy is required to make sure that you know, if we need to change those power sources and energy sources in individual homes, then the government needs to make sure it happens by 2030 by helping people who are on lower incomes to achieve it. And that's the end of my lecture.
0: <laughs> it summarizes our, our our belief in the methodology that we put in place. Best way to reduce carbon in the atmosphere is by not emitting in the first place. Absolutely. So don't emit let not where we we don't focus on carbon capture sequestration. And that brings us to a a, a very interesting topic, which is where that innovation is taking place. There are a lot of portfolio managers that in 2021 had a good year and they think that they're right in that um, there's a lot of value and the true winners of this transition will actually be the Ford, GM, and Chevron, Exxon, so on and so forth, because they will continue to make, they have this cash cows, the internal combustion engines and the fossil fuel, and there's a lot of cash flow being generated from those businesses, and they are the ones that know how to do capex, complex projects, so they are the ones that will be the leaders. We're, We're quite skeptical and critical of that. We that's not what we we are observing. Tesla, of course, we can have hours and hours of discussion just on what Tesla is doing, but we we would be interested um, in getting your views. And then I may just throw into that also your views on nuclear, because that brings the aspect of necessary evils into the equation. Very curious to get your thoughts.
2: Well, Ford and GM, and I suppose Chrysler as well, obviously the three big big car manufacturers in the United States, some of the biggest in the world, of course. I think all three of them were in Chapter 11 in the crash of 2007-8. So they're, they, they and, and Ford's got $100 billion more, more than $100 billion of debt, which will never pay off. So, and I don't think GM's particularly better placed, or and I'm not sure about Chrysler, but I'm sure it's not, you know, fantastically well up either. Those companies are, are, are propped up by the US government or have been in the past. And people who talk about, why should we give subsidies to these new renewable technology people like Tesla and solar and wind? Well, let's just have a look at history, shall we? And see what happened with those automakers 12, 13 years ago. They wouldn't be here unless it was for government support. I personally think that they're only just starting to respond to the EV revolution now, whether they can throw enough money at it to catch up with people like Tesla, to a certain extent, Volkswagen, I suppose, remains to be seen. I'm not sure they will. I think they've been too slow to respond and I'm not sure they're responding rapidly enough. Even now, they're kind of paying lip service to it. They're adding a chucking a couple of electric models into the range. Is it the Ford F-150? I don't know the American pickup truck. That's obviously very popular. They're doing an electric version of that smart move by Ford. Can't blame them for that. But are they really, you know, are they pushing it? I don't know. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if a company like Ford is is not even in existence by 2030. If they don't really, really change their ways, then they may not survive. And it's a similar story in Europe and also the Japanese car makers like Toyota need to up their game and get into the, get into the arena. Hyundai and people like that are, are changing. They're doing a good job. So car market's very competitive. It doesn't, I don't think it needs much government help now because electric vehicles are so much better than internal combustion engine cars. As the grids begin to decarbonize, Then, I mean, it's already better to have an internal over the, over the life of the car. It's already far less carbon heavy to have an EV than it is to have an ice vehicle. There's an upfront cost in EVs, of course, in the manufacturing, because there's a lot of, um, carbon heavy industries that are required to produce the materials. Cobalt as well is not an ideal thing, but again, that's changing lithium ion phosphate batteries, for example, don't have any cobalt in them and CATL in China use those batteries for all the Teslas that are made in China. So there's alternatives that are being honed, that, that market's being honed all the time and improved all the time, the battery market for electric vehicles. And it's just gonna be a straight competition now, straight run to the line between now and 2030. Who's got the better product at the better price that's more attractive to the customer um, with the infrastructure that supports it and a grid system that in the case of EVs that, that's getting you know more and more solar and wind heavy and therefore more and more green in, in its distribution. And I think that race will, will you know, if you look at the, the, the direction of, of travel is clearly in favor of EVs. So, you know, companies can get on the, on, the, on the bandwagon or not. And if they don't, they won't survive. And it's as simple as that. In terms of nuclear, I am, I suppose, what you call agnostic about nuclear. I'm, I'm neither pro nor anti. There are undoubtedly some areas in the world where nuclear is, if we want, again, it's about time. If we want to get to where we need to be as quickly as possible, then in some parts of the world, We will need, or it will be quicker if we utilize nuclear power um, in some way. I think America's already got more nuclear power stations than anywhere else in the world, but China's rapidly carrying up, catching up. And for every nuclear power station that China builds, that's 10 or 15 coal power uh, stations that they can close. So you have to say in that respect, you've got to, uh, in my opinion, you should favor nuclear in those circumstances, but it's not it's not the long-term, in my opinion, again, it's not the long-term answer to our problem because renewable technologies like wind and solar are just, just better. And, and they're in such high volume now that we won't need nuclear proliferation everywhere in the world to solve the problem. We just need it to get us over this immediate urgent hump of getting rid of gas and coal and oil wherever, wherever we can. We just need to get rid of those t- um, fuels as quickly as we possibly can. And if nuclear can help us over that hump, then I think that should be done. But in the longer term, the target, in my view, has to be getting you know geothermal, solar, wind, and all those other um, technologies in place around the world with coordinated, integrated smart grids, with intercontinental interconnectors, sharing energy you know around the world so that when it's sunny in one place and dark in another, you can export energy from one to the other and vice versa, and you've got that economy of scale, if you like, just like we have with the internet. You know, the internet is a is a sprawling spider that crosses boundaries and continents all over the world. The electricity grid, to a certain extent, will emulate that, and power will be moving from A to B to C all over the place, completely fluidly. That might not be fully realized in my lifetime. There's some political shenanigans that will need to be sorted out to achieve that. Of course, I'm not naive. I recognize that. but in principle, that's how the world will be powered in the future.
1: We couldn't agree more, especially with the interconnectivity and the potential for electricity to flow like the internet. I love that parallel. We have so much more that we could talk to you about and ask you, Dave. And we are so short on time, but we always like to end with uh, one final question. You've already talked a lot about what you think the world will be like in 2030. Nuclear, uh, regrettable or or perhaps you're agnostic, but might be needed in certain places. 80% power could be sorted by wind and solar and individuals and what they're doing. Are you hopeful? What do you think the world will be like? Is there anything that you haven't mentioned that you think will be there? Understanding that it's hard to predict, especially given the last two years, we know there's a lot, we don't know of what's going to come up.
2: This is actually a very difficult question. And the reason it's difficult is that what I don't want to do is to cause anybody to feel a sense of despair especially young people coming into the world now who are looking forward to 40 years of working life or, or, you know, or the next 60 years of their own whole life if they're 20 now. And that takes us to the back, back part of this century. And, and, you know, I've got three nephews who are that sort of age and they're all wondering what the world will look like. So I don't want to fill people with despair, but I also don't want to um, tell untruth and, and, and try and sugar the pill. The world will be a difficult place in the next few decades. We might not feel it so acutely in, in rich Western nations as the people in mid-latitudes who will have to either migrate in their hundreds of millions or die because the the weather changes, the climate changes rather, that are built into our atmosphere now, pretty much unstoppable. It doesn't really matter what we do between now and 2050. In my view, two degrees of warming is, is baked in. We, we're not, going to, we're not going to avoid that. So we need to start, you know, or the world will start learning how to adapt to those changes. But of course, that means that in some parts of the world, it's going to be 55, 56, 57 degrees Celsius in the hottest parts of their year. And that means you can't work outside. And the whole of those societies that are based on outside working will have to not do that. They'll have to move to other areas. And people who, who don't live with air conditioning in those societies will, will perish. So, you know, those are the realities. It's, there are tough things going to happen in the world, in the future. And migration is one of the biggest problems we'll have because as people move from, you know, a, a very badly afflicted area, that the areas that aren't so badly afflicted will need to be, they'll, need, they'll have to accept them in. And if they don't accept them in, then there's going to be conflicts. How will that impact on us? Well, we've already got some migration in, in Europe. We've got, even in, even in the United States, you've got people moving from state to state. Because it's because they're finding it's unlivable in the you know in the really hotter states, and we will find our main problem is assuming we don't have a global conflict. If there's only regional conflicts, probably the biggest problem in the in Europe and the states will be food shortages because of the unpredictable weather affecting farmers' crops. And they're not insurmountable problems. The point I'm trying to make is we need to get busy very quickly on understanding those problems and not pretending they're not going to happen. So that we can get on with finding the right solutions in behavioral change, in technological change, and in environmental stewardship change. Those are the three things, the three stools of the uh, three legs of the stool that I mentioned at the start, and they need, we need to accept, confront the issue, not put our heads in the sand and start working on it quickly. So that's how I see the future. If we get that right, the future is bright. If we ignore it and think we can sail through like we've sailed through everything else in our history then we will be in very deep existential trouble in 30, 40, 50 years' time.
0: That's uh, that's powerful, Dave. And, and, and we, we can only thank you for the work that you are doing and, and we look forward to the next episodes and we'll watch your work and share some more ideas and things that we are ourselves looking at. I think what gives us a lot of hope is that we talk a lot about S-shape adoption and people embracing technologies. I think the awareness on, on climate change is, is increasing and it's very high um, and there's no turning back. So even, uh, you know, that small universe of people that are the deniers, um, the overwhelming majority is looking forward and and making that parallel with the movie. Everybody's looking up. Yeah. Um, and. and and which I think it was not the case three years ago when we first started. Well, we're, we're, everybody's working hard. Great minds are collaborating and that gives us a lot of hope. And and thank you again for, for enlightening us with your very well thought out episodes. No wonder you've gotten over 26 million views. So congratulations, a round of applause. We love what you do. And we really thank you for making the time to share, you know, more about your experience in your journey with us. Thank you.
2: Thank you. Great to speak to you.
0: Thanks for listening.
1: Climate Talk is produced by Spark Network. You can listen to Climate Talk on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your shows. To find out more about us, visit us at iclima.earth. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. See you next week.